Are you called to ministry? Throughout the month of March, Midwestern Seminary is giving away free resources and content to equip you to pursue your calling for the church. Your calling is too important to pursue unequipped, so we want to gift you with helpful books and articles, scholarships to seminary commentary sets, Logos Bible software, and more. Enter to win these giveaways at mbts.edu slash called. Everyone who enters can receive free ebooks during the entire month of March as well. This is an incredible giveaway. You can win scholarships, you can win helpful books, you can win commentary sets, and you can win a Logos Bible software package. That's incredible. And there are so much more that they're giving away over at mbts.edu slash called. Go check out this giveaway. Everyone who enters can receive free ebooks during the month of March. So there is really no reason to not enter this giveaway right now. mbts.edu slash called. You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worland. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. You guys remember the Truman Show? Good morning. Good afternoon. Good night. I loved that movie. It was an underrated movie. It's a fantastic it's, movie. It's actually... I've never seen it. Oh, JT. You've never seen the Truman Show. I should see that. Well, JT, now now everyone's going to know who wrote the chapter intro in the book that we co-authored that talked about the Truman Show. <laughs> I got to say, though, that <laughs> intro made me really want to watch it. <laughs> you read the... You, I know. I feel like uh, it awkward. feels like one of those movies that you know the premise of, and you're like, I, I get it. It's the yeah. only Jim Carrey movie that I like. The only one. Wow. I like Dumb and Dumber. Okay. A study of personality. I, is I what like. We just I, got right I basically there. couldn't watch a Jim Carrey movie, but okay. that's a that's a good one. Uh, you know what? Coming right out of the Christmas season here, you have you guys rewatched The Grinch with Jim Carrey? Because that I movie is creepy it. in a way that I don't remember it yeah, being. I, I like try to show it to Lydia, and I was like, uh, no. "We're not going to watch this one." No. He's no, also naked. The Grinch is naked the whole time, and nobody seems it's to have a not problem good. with it. <laughs> yeah. He's a man. Yeah. A, I know. I believe the Grinch me. is a dude. Yeah. yeah. Also, you just can't top the original, the Boris Karloff and all that. Uh, although I will, I need to back off because I do think that Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind was a good movie as well, and he was so in you, that. You like Jim Carrey in a in a drama? Yes, he is so. He's a caricature in everything that he does, but yeah. he is not a caricature. Well, I mean, he's supposed to be in the Truman Show, like in a really subtle way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in Eternal Sunshine, he's just a character. Have you ever seen The Man on the Moon where he's playing Andy Kaufman? Yes. I don't it's, I think I did watch oh, that. It's, That's a it's good movie. really good. If you like him in a more serious drama role, it's fantastic. No, I don't. I, mean, I don't really. I'm not looking for more ways to watch Jim Carrey. But OK, good. All right. I'll great. keep it in mind. Okay, yeah, with your way of saying, please move on. And we will. Uh, uh, we are, uh, this season, uh, we are not exploring the, the filmography of Jim Carrey, unfortunately, though that would be a podcast I would dive into headlong. Uh, we are talking uh, about Exodus. We're taking two seasons on Exodus. Why? Jen, why, why is this worth the time? Wait a minute. Why did you reference the Truman Show? Does it connect to the Book of Exodus, or were you? No, because I said good morning, good morning, good morning, and it made me think oh, of good morning, okay, good afternoon. Okay, 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 mm -hmm. okay. Yes. Sorry, my. What segue. was the question again? Sorry. Uh, yeah. No, this is great. We're off for season twelve. We are off to it's going a, fine. A really smooth start. Uh, why are we taking two seasons to explore Exodus? Right. I mean, we've done other books in one season. Why? Why two seasons on Exodus? From your view, as somebody who's you know 
written a curriculum on Exodus. Yeah, well, I think that if you want to be a good student of the Bible as a whole, you have to have Genesis and Exodus, certainly in your tool belt, like yeah. firmly in view. And, um, you know, we were we were laughing on our, our uh, little teaser episode about the Bible reading plan syndrome. And so I'm pretty sure people make it through Genesis every year pretty firmly, and then they maybe limp through Exodus. But um, what we want is for you to know those stories, to um, understand how they are shaping the rest of the story in Scripture. And in most cases, uh, we have sort of a spot knowledge of Exodus in particular, or we have a a cinematic understanding of it because we all saw a movie or a cartoon. And so what we're trying to do is say, hey, there's a lot to this book, and you might be missing critical elements of it, and you need to see how all of those elements fit together. Yeah. And one of the reasons why Exodus, why, why Genesis, Genesis and Exodus, uh, you know, are so helpful to have in your Bible literacy tool belt is because they have themes, crucial parts of the story that seem to echo very loudly across the rest of the Bible. Some of this has to be by virtue of the fact that they are at the beginning of the story and beginnings have a way of echoing across the whole of any good and coherent story. And the Bible is the best and most coherent story. And, but the themes in Exodus do reverberate pretty loudly, don't they JT? I mean, I would say that when you're exploring even the gospels, just to use a very like middle of the road kind of example, the Exodus themes are going to reverberate pretty loudly across the Gospels. True? Yeah. I mean, the Gospel writers, uh, their imaginative framework for who God is, what he's done, and the story of the Bible is found here. You know, many theologians have called uh, the Pentateuch and Genesis in particular the seedbed of the rest of Scripture. This is where you go to find all of the spiritual fruit that you're going to find through the law and the prophets and that you're going to find eventually in the gospel writers and even Paul and the rest of the epistles. I mean, and, and also, Jen, I know you've you've brought some really helpful insights last season. I know you will again this season on Revelation and how these themes are, like really reverberate everywhere. I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say—actually, I know it's not an overstatement to say—you can't understand— the rest of Scripture without begin understanding uh, the beginning of the story mm-hmm. and how uh, Moses is beginning to frame uh, all of redemptive history here in in Genesis and then the now in Exodus. That's right. That's right. So when uh, if you're in your Bible reading plans that a lot of people start at the beginning of the year, then you're in Genesis, you're in Exodus, you're in the Pentateuch. And I I think that there are certainly parts of uh, the Pentateuch and Genesis and Exodus specifically that are going to be easy for you to gloss over. And, And I believe that really begins in the back half of Exodus. For a lot of people in their Bible reading plan, they start getting to after the Ten Commandments and they're thinking, wait, what is happening? Why do I care? It's what Jen said in the teaser to this season. She was like, it's the blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's, uh, maybe it's like the Charlie Brown adult voice of the Pentateuch where you're just thinking like, it just sounds like blood, names, numbers, altars, where it just feels like, why does all of this matter? And yet I think that the story the story that has led up to this moment is crucial that we have that in mind. And since we covered most of the real narrative engine uh, from Genesis in the first half of Exodus in last season, we don't want you to feel like if you're a new listener to the show, I don't want you to hear us and go, hey, to really follow along with where we're at now, you got to go back and listen to all of season 11. I think you would be really helped by it if you haven't, or if you're embarking on the back half of Exodus, I think there's a lot in season 11, what was going on in the fall 
that would be very helpful for you. But I don't want that to feel necessary. I want you to be able to join us as we are where we are right now. And so we're going to do a little bit of retelling of the story so far. And so, Jen, would you maybe just kick us off with a Genesis retelling that goes from let's let's you take us from the creation of the world to Abraham and then I'll give JT Abraham to the end of Genesis. How about that? Yeah. So um, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we get what's called the uh, primeval history. And so it's the history that happens before we get into the story of a specific family, Abraham's family. And it is asking and answering some of the biggest questions, the biggest existential questions that anyone can ask and answer. And it's doing that because it's providing a world and words for um, for what other religions had provided a world and words for. And so Moses wants the Israelite people to receive this story so that they can carry it with them into the land of Canaan. They come out of the land of Egypt, um, where they have been in this polytheistic setting, and they're heading into Canaan, which will also be polytheistic. And so what Moses is doing in the writing of this history is saying, you are not like where you came from. You are not like where you are going. And so then we are not surprised at all to read the opening lines of scripture when it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth it's not merely a statement about who God is it's also a statement about who the other gods are not and so then from there he builds out a creation narrative around six days that we many of us are familiar with and a seventh day in which God rests setting a pattern of rest for his creatures as well Um, And then we go from the creation account in Genesis 1 to a retelling of the creation account, a zooming in. We see the first view from sort of a heaven perspective looking down on the earth. And in Genesis 2, we see it from an earthly perspective. Uh, We're in the garden. We zoom in and we get to see the creation of humankind with more specificity and the purpose for humankind. Um, So when we get out of Genesis 1 and 2, we already have some big answers to some questions. Mm -hmm. Who created God did why did he create he created for his glory uh, where did humans come from well God created them what's their purpose their purpose is to be um, vice regents to reign and rule in God's creation and to be multiplying and filling the world with people who bear the image of God uh, we get to Genesis chapter 3 and another big question is answered why is everything so messed up and we find the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God's good reign and rule and the consequences that ensue the man and the woman who were created to co-labor and to serve side by side are now going to compete with one another they're going to tear each other down instead of stand shoulder to shoulder uh, and then we see that play out immediately in the story of Cain and Abel the the question posed by Cain becomes the question that is going to echo down the rest of scripture. Uh, And when God comes to him and says, what have you done? He says, am I my brother's keeper? A really Mm -hmm. important question that traces to uh, Christ himself who answers profoundly and deeply uh, to, to every extent with the answer of yes. Then we follow through the story of how sin is now going to work its way into every aspect of the created order, uh, which takes us to the flood narrative that we find in uh, in Genesis 6 through roughly about 9. And it's there that we see the first explicit covenant, although there was an implicit covenant that was given in the garden when God says that he will provide um, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, But the Noahic covenant is then stated very clearly to 
Noah on the backside of the flood. The flood is sent to sort of reset. Um, God looks around and says that everyone has is has turned to evil, uh, but but Noah is seen as a righteous man. He and his family are preserved through the flood, and then God covenants with Noah that he will never again pour out his judgment on the earth by flood to to destroy it. Then after that, we get uh, a listing of uh, the table of nations, the the people who um, are on the face of the earth after the flood. And toward the end of that list, we hear mention of a man named Abram. And Abram, we're told in that table of nations, has a wife named Sarah, and it's mentioned explicitly that she is barren. So from there, over to you, JT. There we go. Look at that. I was going to say, that's like better than the Bible reading plan. You can just <laughs> listen to, to a little narration. That was really good. Um, I'm going to go maybe a little bit faster because I've got, what, 38 chapters to cover. So we'll go, <laughs> go a bit quick. Uh, but that was great. It was really good. And one of the things that Jen mentioned that I'll, I'll just key in on here is God is a God of covenant. Mm-hmm. And so there is that implicit covenant in the creation account. And then, of course, the Noahic covenant, which she just mentioned. And then we have this man named Abram mentioned, who is an unlikely character. Him and his wife, Sarai, are living in Ur, and God elects him. uh, Because one of the main questions that we have coming out of this primeval history of Genesis 1 to 11 now is, is God going to restore his kingdom to this world? Will he one day dwell with his people again? Will they be in right relationship with him and each other? And this, this story in Genesis chapter 12 specifically verses 1 through 3, some theologians and Bible scholars have called one of the most pivotal texts in all of Scripture, because it's here where we see God coming down and electing a people for himself and saying some very important things like, Abram, I'm going to bless you, and those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. So God is restarting his kingdom. He's restarting his family on earth through Abram. And he promises some some very specific things, that God will be with him, he'll be present, that he's going to give him land or a place to live, that he's giving him a purpose to to bless the nations. And he's going to do it. So presence people, purpose, oh, people, he's, he's now going to be God's people, uh, this family. But it's important to highlight here, I know we don't have a lot of time for this, but it isn't just that God's going to have one people for himself. This people are meant to draw in all the nations, all the people. Mm -hmm. So election never terminates on Abram or this family of Israel. It's meant to go to the nations and bless them as they're going to be a city situated upon a hill. Uh, one of the problems is is uh, he he needs a son. He doesn't have a son. If, if his descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars in the heavens, he needs a son. His wife is old in age, and through a sequence of events, uh, part of uh, Abraham's doubt, and then part of some of his belief, and there's just kind of this real kind of guttural and raw human interaction with God. God does provide this son. This son is uh, Isaac. Isaac is given, and he. The, we read this story, maybe you've heard this story before, in Genesis of Abraham having to sacrifice his son named Isaac, and gutturally, every single human, whether you know covenantal history, would say, this is a terrible thing, the father sacrificing his son. And that's one way to read it. But another way to read the Bible, too, is to say, not only is this the uh, son of Abraham, this is the promised seed that we've been looking back to since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is the one that we thought was going to be the one who brings the kingdom of God. So Abraham is really putting his trust in the covenantal faithfulness of Yahweh, this God. And uh, this is one of the other 
pictures that we see in Genesis is substitutionary atonement. Instead of sacrificing his son, God provides a ram in a thicket, and this should give us pictures of Christ being the lamb of God caught in the thicket with the crown of thorns on his head, laid on the wood of the cross instead of the the, the wood of the altar. So that's what I mean by the, the seedbeds of Scripture are, are found here mm-hmm. in some really important ways. I won't tell the whole story of the family, but one thing we do see about this family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is they are messed up. <laughs> I mean, they have some real challenges, <laughs> you know, throughout the rest of Genesis, whether it's infidelity, lying, cheating. I mean, it's just... It's really a kind of a challenging story, which is a good reminder for us that even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful, and He is faithful to this family through the story of Genesis. And then uh, kind of wrapping up towards the end of Genesis, there are these 12 sons of Jacob, or now his name is Israel, and they find themselves in Egypt because they have uh, sinfully and with wickedness in their heart sold their youngest son away, uh, brother away into slavery, and they go down to Egypt to eventually find uh, food because there's a famine in the land that God has provided them. And they have this interaction of reconciliation with their brother. Another picture of of one of the themes we're going to see throughout the story of the Bible is uh, seemingly what is impossible with man is possible with God. The, these brothers are reconciled, and we see a small picture of the gospel there. But that's how they find themselves in Egypt. You know, we just said that Abraham was, he's the people of God, this family's the people of God, but they're no longer in the place of God or enjoying the presence of God. They find themselves in Egypt, and that's where we pick up the rest of the story. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. That's right. And when we get to the beginning of Exodus, um, it says right at the right at the outset in chapter one, it lists these are the sons of Israel. And it says in verse seven, the people of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So Israel has ended up in Egypt by virtue of Joseph being able to bring in his brothers and their kinsmen and his family in a time of famine. You know, the earth was moving towards Egypt at this time. And the telling of the story 
Egypt is uniquely suited because of some unique provision that they had by way of Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dream to be able to be the breadbasket of a ancient world in famine. And so lots of people groups are now having to engage with Egypt for basic sustenance, but Israel has special access through their long lost brother, newly discovered, uh, Joseph. And he brings them into the land where they not only survive, they thrive. But in verse 8 of Exodus 1, we hear, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And that line tells us what we need to know, which is that this king, this pharaoh in Egypt is increasingly concerned about a non-Egyptian people group thriving in his space, in his country, because they're growing strong. So what if they decide to try to overtake Egypt or overthrow Egypt? And so Exodus begins with a honestly, a forgetting, a forgetting of Joseph. And in the forgetting of Joseph, there is a new threat on the horizon in Pharaoh's view, which is the people of Israel, a non-native people who are now entrenched in the land, entangled up in its affairs, and that might present a present or future threat to the, you know, to the Egyptian people, the Egyptian nation or Egyptian essentialness. And I think that it's important to to see how quickly the the action shifts from this forgetting to the presence of a new major figure, which is Moses. Um, and so we immediately are introduced to Moses in chapter two. Uh, chapter, two, we're going to explore some of these themes in the next episode. So I don't want you to see us rushing past a lot of this. We just want you to get the story. But Moses shows up. He is a child of a Hebrew woman. He is delivered, even though he should not have been. According to Pharaoh's edict, he should have been killed. His life is sovereignly preserved uh, across the Nile River, and he is actually brought into Pharaoh's household where he is raised within the scope of the king of Egypt's home. Uh, Following, uh, really, we get almost nothing about his adolescence, but then we see him as an adult man uh, kill an Egyptian slave master uh, who is abusing uh, an Israelite slave. The people of Israel are are really not just now in Egypt, they have been enslaved in Egypt, uh, and they are being abused in this slavery in Egypt. They're being taken advantage of and exploited. Uh, uh, Moses feels some sense of justice that coerces him to step in uh, and to try to protect this Israelite that's being abused and mistreated, and he kills the one that's abusing him, the taskmaster who's, who's, who's abusing him, and then he runs away. He runs away. Uh, he runs out to Midian where he starts a family. That's what happens. And not only does he start a family, uh, he encounters the presence of Yahweh in the burning bush. Yahweh calls him and says, hey, I have heard the cries of my people, Israel, and I am going to rescue and deliver them. And this deliverance happens by way of a mediator, and that mediator is Moses. So Moses returns to Egypt, uh, and through the power of God demonstrated in the plagues, uh, through the power of God demonstrated in the persuasive speech of Aaron and in the public witness of Moses, God releases the people of Israel uh, under the bloody doorpost of a slain lamb. He brings them out of Egypt, plundering the Egyptians in the process. And then he brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai, where he is now beginning to instruct them, uh, not only in the story that is their birthright uh, by grace uh, and is the foundation of their deliverance. He is beginning to reshape what their practice of their faith will look like by instructing them in the law. How will they now live in the presence of God outside of the land of 
of Egypt while he is bringing them to the land he promised their forefather, Abraham. So this is how we have arrived where we're at. We left off at the end of last season, really at the foot of Mount Sinai, um, hearing the the first kind of the essential foundational instruction of the law in the Ten Commandments. And so that, that's, that's where we were at. And now the back half of Exodus, these characters are going to continue this story, Moses and, and Aaron and um, uh, the people of Israel, the, the tabernacling presence of God uh, is now going to continue as they begin this new phase of the journey of learning how to live their life in the presence of God outside of the land of Egypt. Um, what is, why is Mount Sinai important? historically for the people of Israel? Where does it factor in? Is this the is this just some random mountain? Is there some historical significance? I feel like Sinai almost functions as a character in and of itself at this part in the story. Jen, why is Mount Sinai important in the history of Israel? Well, I don't want to be lured into talking about themes before I'm supposed to, but <clears throat> mountains are a theme, guys. Uh, but in Sinai's case, the first place that we actually see it is when the the when God commands Abraham to um, take his son and, and offer him as a sacrifice. Um, that is the same location, and then it is also the location of the burning bush. And when we see God descend on Sinai in Exodus 19, um, when we understand that those two other occurrences have happened, then we understand. And with greater clarity, the significance of what happens in Exodus 19 and 20, um, that God has been hinting at what is about to happen, uh, not just that he's going to give his law, but that he's going to be faithful to provide the one who will fulfill the law perfectly, um, which is what, what's hinted at in that story that we see with Abraham um, laying Isaac on the altar and Isaac's willingness to, to follow his father's lead there. Um, and so then you'll, you'll get to see, okay, I'll just say a little bit about the themes. Yeah, do it. Um, you're going to get to see mountains, um, set in, in juxtaposition to each other. Uh, and the author of Hebrews compares Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. Um, and so we begin to understand there is a way that God is going to interact with his children while they inhabit, uh, the kingdom of earth. And there is a way that God will ultimately and eternally, um, interact with his children as it relates to the heavenly corresponding mountain of, of Mount Zion. That may not have been very clear. No, that was, no, that's great. That's good. That's great. JT, is Zion the final destination for Israel? Oh, I'm sorry, not Zion. Is Sinai the final destination for Israel? Yeah, I was like, I mean, kind, kind, kind of. of. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, am I yes. being tricked? Uh, <laughs> no, Mount Sinai is not. I mean, this is the place, again, they're given the law. They're, they're being given the law. They're being given the Ten Commandments. But they're also being about to be given instructions for a mobile tabernacle, mm -hmm. this place where God is going to dwell with his people. They're no longer going to dwell at Sinai with him. Uh, they're going to be, God's going to be with them in their wilderness wanderings. And again, there's a lot of themes we could explore there, but I'll never forget the first time I heard you say this, Kyle, uh, when we used to teach together, you called it a mobile Eden. And my mm -hmm. mind just kind of went boom mm -hmm. when I heard that, because this is the place where God's holiness was kept. This is the place that was meant to be clean. This is the place where uh, priests, the uh, Adam and Eve were meant to work as priests on God's behalf and represent God to creation and uh, creation to God. And so this this is now, so one of the reasons this matters so much is they're going to start assembling mm -hmm. the place 
where God is going to dwell with his people. I, I mentioned a moment ago, the rest of the Bible doesn't make sense without these uh, two books. I mean, Leviticus makes no sense yeah. without the holiness of God and the place of God, the presence of God being with his people, and how they're ought to interact with each other, with God, and with the nations. And so what we're going to see here in, in some of the following chapters, even before we get to the golden calf, is how how God is basically setting up his home, yeah. uh, where he is going to live with his people, and how God's people are, are meant to interact with him. That's right. That's right. Now, in the next episode, we're going to explore the themes of Exodus so far, just like we explored the story so far in this episode. Next episode, we're going to look at the themes, birth, deliverance, redemption, covenant, baptism, liturgy. These themes that have shown up in Exodus 1 through 20 are going to be crucial, not just for understanding the back half of Exodus. These are the themes that are reverberating both before and beyond. It's almost like ripples in water that Exodus just kind of exercises this disproportionate impact over the story of the Bible. So I'm excited about exploring those themes uh, before we jump into the meat of the back half of Exodus this season. Uh, if you want to find more for Knowing Faith, you can go back and listen to season 11, where we explore really the first 20 chapters of Exodus together, diving deep into the story and the themes that we're going to just tease a little bit and review a little bit in the next episode. You can find Knowing Faith wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, they're online. You can also find Knowing Faith on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I do want to point out and just congratulate Jen and JT, your theologian was on all a lot of end of year book lists for people saying, Hey, if you missed it, you should read it. And I just want to say, yeah, you should. It's a fantastic <laughs> book. Somebody recently messaged me and said, Hey, we're looking to do some basic theological training in our church. We need an introductory guide to the Christian story and Christian theology that's accessible for our people. And I said, Hey, I, this is not me being a company man. And it's not just me, you know, supporting my friends, but you are a theologian is now that new resource for churches. And so if you've got an Amazon gift card from Christmas, that's burning a hole in your pocket, I'll tell you what Jen and JT are too humble to say. You should go check out. You are a theologian. It's a fantastic book. Go read it. If you want to find out some more behind the scenes stuff for the podcast, you can go to trainthechurch.com slash support. A lot of people ask us, Hey, how can I support the show? This is going to seem like a crazy thing. If you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it helps other people find the show. Don't ask me how the algorithms work. I do not know. In my mind, they're all pixie dust and fairy tales. I don't know how it works. In the same way that I don't know how electricity works and how Wi-Fi works. But for some reason, if you want other people to find this show, if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it helps them. So that's what Engineer Brad has told me to say. That's what I'm telling you right now. Check out our wonderful sister shows on the Train the Church Podcast Network. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace. Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or theology? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminaries for the Church Institute, which offers courses in Old and New Testament, Christian theology, and more, including the newly released course on missional leadership. Again, this is free theological training that you can use for your own equipping, for the equipping of those in your church, and it is available for groups or on your own. You can learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for theological training courses, free theological training courses today. Go check it out.